Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Now, welcome to our Grand Rounds. Uh, I think you will enjoy today's presentation. Uh, and in just a second, I'll ask uh, uh, Dr. Santos to introduce Dr. Crosby. Before before I begin, uh, uh, just a couple of a couple of things. You know, the first is we you know our hearts go out to uh, our colleagues and friends and and fellow citizens in the Ukraine uh, that uh, are suffering so much during this time. It is just heartbreaking to see what's going on, and uh, we pray during this uh, Easter week that that a resolution will come soon and, and that uh, they will find you know, peace moving forward. It's a, it's a very, very hard situation. And so for those of you who have family members or friends, uh, you know, we're with you in this very, very difficult time. We really have to uh, recognize that. And, uh, and you know, what I do is, is obviously prayer and I'm trying to understand you know, how to help them from, from that perspective. Uh, there are many Ukrainians here in the U.S. Uh, I was driving in, in Glastonbury, and there's a Ukrainian Catholic church, which is really, you know, close to Whole Foods, and uh, a lot of flowers have been left there. And, again, our, our hearts go out to them because they're really uh, suffering uh, tremendously in a way that is just unbearable to see the kids, the moms, the, uh, the grandparents, and, uh, and, and the men that are uh, trying to uh, save their country. Uh, so uh, a prayer for them in this time of difficulty. Uh, on a on a more positive note, obviously this this is Easter week, and and, uh, and then tomorrow Passover begins, as well. So I want to wish everyone uh, a happy Easter on Sunday, and a happy Passover as well. Uh, it, you know, it's it's a, uh, been two and a half years of, of great difficulty with with COVID. Uh, unfortunately, BA two is still in in the in the midst of us, and there's been a little bit of an uptick. Uh, and uh, here, even here in Connecticut, the positivity rate has gone up over five percent, close to six percent. Uh, fortunately, with not as dramatic uh, an increase as we saw with Omicron in January, <clears throat> but we are seeing uh, kids coming in uh, to the ED with uh, positive SARS-CoV-2 testing. We're, we have also seen uh, an uptick on influenza. So be, be cognizant of that as, as you move into the, into the spring break, then many people are actually uh, celebrating uh, this week. Uh, but we, we'll make it through. You know, these things will, will pass as well. And uh, as I've always said, be not afraid in that process. And we'll get, a, we'll get to the later spring and the summer and hopefully better times. Uh, we, uh, I just want to uh, remind everyone that May 6th, uh, and, and I'll say it again at the end, uh, Dr. Shriver will be back uh, with Ask the Experts to provide an update on on COVID-19, and then on April 19th, our next grand rounds is uh, Dr. Angela Scott uh, uh, turning to the humanities. So much depends, and uh, that's another you know great uh, uh, grand rounds in developmental pediatrics. Now, to introduce Dr. Crosby today, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Santos uh, to uh, come up to the podium. And uh, I think all of you know Dr. Santos. Uh, it, you know, I, I look back over the last three to five years, especially the last two years, and I'm trying to think of who among the, the, the division heads has had more impact in, in Connecticut Children's and in the region than, than anyone. I think, and I think Melissa's name comes up. Um, I, I seem to hear her present at, at the executive management team retreats. Uh, she is uh, at, at the legislature. She is on 
news media, national media, and uh, really has uh, risen to the challenge in this behavioral health crisis that we, we have encountered. And Melissa has shown exemplary leadership. We're very lucky to have her. Uh, she's been with us for a number of years. My only regret is that she didn't go into HIV uh, prevention and research. I tried to convince her, but you know, I think she had uh, a broader uh, uh, set of objectives. And so that's the only thing I always hold against her. But other than that, I mean, she's been a formidable leader. And, and she has brought us Dr. Crosby today uh, to present about promoting health equity through community and faculty engagement. Uh, so Melissa, please come up to the podium and introduce your speaker. Thank you, Dr. Salazar. And in case you were wondering, no, he does not ever let me forget my HIV days. Um, so I am beyond thrilled uh, to be here this morning because this is actually the first uh, Division of Pediatric Psychology sponsored Grand Rounds. And when we asked our pediatric psychologists who they wanted to be their inaugural speaker, we didn't really have a huge discussion on this. We knew who we wanted and we're so thrilled to have Dr. Lori Crosby joining us this morning. Dr. Crosby earned her doctorate uh, from Wright State University and is a professor of, uh, in the Division of Behavioral Medicine and Clinical Psychology at Cincinnati Children's in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Cincinnati. She also directs the Cincinnati Center for Clinical and Translational Sciences Community Engagement Corps and is co-director for Faculty Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Dr. Crosby's overarching research focuses on partnering with individuals, families, and community agencies to improve health, and she's been funded by numerous organizations such as the NIH, PCORI, and HRSA. She has spent the last two years studying the impact of COVID-19 on the black community and how we can increase participation of our black and Latino populations in COVID vaccine trials. She has published widely over 80 publications. She has many book chapters. She's presented all over the place and she was recognized by the Society of Pediatric Psychology for distinguished work in increasing diversity in the field of pediatric psychology. In our profession, Dr. Crosby is a noted leader, mentor, and sponsor, amplifying the voices of those who are not represented or who are not invited to the table. She perhaps epitomizes for me uh, the best quote I have from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that leads others to join you. That is Dr. Crosby. I know I'm one of many pediatric psychologists who have benefited from knowing uh, Dr. Crosby and from the standards she sets for research and innovation to truly show how we can partner with patients and families and our community and show the true impact of how psychology can improve the health of children. Dr. Crosby, I had the good fortune of seeing you a few days ago when we presented together in Phoenix. We're so glad that you accepted our invitation to present here this morning. Welcome to Connecticut Children's Grand Rounds. The floor is yours. Thank you so much for that. Um, very uh, lovely introduction. I am very humbled um, by that. Um, let me just share my screen here so we can go ahead and get started on a discussion this morning. Um, I hope everyone is um, doing well and I hope everyone can hear me okay. Sorry about that. Let me see. Get this back up to where it needs to go. There we go. All right. Um, I'm going to start with some acknowledgments, and I'd like to thank Dr. Salazar and Dr. Santos for this wonderful invitation. It really does take a village um, to do this work, and these are just some of the influences um, in my village um, that I wanted to start with today by thanking them. I always have to start by thanking those who have brought me to this place and helped me with my understanding. So what are we going to be talking about for the next about 40 minutes? We're going to talk about um, community-engaged strategies that can be used to improve health equity. And we're going to also discuss some strategies to promote health equity that can be used within the faculty or the institution. So I just want to start by remembering 
that each decision that we make is an opportunity to plant a seed, a seed to promote equity, whether it's with a patient, a colleague, or the community. From a social justice perspective, what we're trying to do is move from providing uh, workarounds to the context of the community to actually changing community conditions, right? To move from that individual impact to that community impact. And to promote change, we have to focus not only on our downstream and midstream in, um, in interventions, but also on upstream strategies. And what we find is that we have to use multiple strategies. So at the, at the same time that we might be addressing someone's individual social needs, we can't stop there. We must also work to improve the practices, policies, and conditions in which that individual may live, work, or play. And so I think what we need to start thinking about is having an and 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 conversation. How can I work upstream and either midstream or downstream? So today I'm going to provide some examples of doing just that, working using multiple strategies when engaging the community and faculty. And we're going to start by defining what we mean by community engagement. So community engagement is not just going out and doing community outreach, but it's a strategic process with a purpose. And the purpose is really to work with groups of people to identify and address issues affecting their well-being. And the focus is not on the individual, but on the collective with a consideration for diversity that exists within any community. So I'm going to talk about four community engagement strategies. There are many, but I'm going to give you examples of four today that I think that you could apply to your own work at Connecticut Children's. And I'm going to use these and talk about these examples um, using our COVID work um, just to um, give just to, as an example. But again, think about how these can be applied to your own work. So we'll start by talking about how can you assess community needs and how can you use that information to inform health practices and policies. We'll talk about co-designing tailored messaging with your community stakeholders, partnering with community leaders and organizations to address myths and promote health, and training cultural brokers to disseminate evidence-based information in the community. So we're going to start by um, using a study that we conducted during COVID entitled Attitudes About COVID-19 and Health. What we found is that a lot of people were having emotional and um, reactions to COVID, but not many people were looking at the impact on behavioral health. And so what we did is we created the attached study which really looked to examine attitudes and beliefs about the mitigation strategies. So those things we hear about all the time, hand washing, wearing masks, social distancing, and anxiety and depression. And we really wanted to oversample African-Americans in our community and Blacks uh, people in our community, as well as we wanted some um, racial and ethnic diversity. 
We wanted to have real-time data that could be used to address interventions in our own community. So we created a study that had poll data and the polls were daily. And then it also had uh, validated measures of behavioral health. And so this is just an example of one of the poll questions. In the past week, has it been difficult to comply with the current pandemic measures outlined by the government? And people would just say yes, somewhat or not at all. This poll would come to their phone every day. What we found is that there were barriers to mitigation strategies and there were things that were helping people to comply with mitigation strategies. But we didn't stop there by just gathering the information. Instead, we worked with a community advisory board of local agencies in our community who were one, coming together in a task force to look at the Black and Latino community and their um, COVID response. So really focused on those disparities with COVID. And these community advisors, not only could we feed the data back to them, but they also helped us develop the next poll question, right? Because they knew what they were hearing and they were seeing in the community. And so they fed that information back to us so that we could make sure that our questions were getting the pulse of the community and what was important to the community. We use the data um, to change their policies and practices. So for example, when they learned that it was hard to get certain supplies like hand sanitizer and, and masks, what a lot of these community agencies did is start supplying those to, their, um, to individuals. And again, the information went back to the COVID-19 um, Health Disparities Task Force and that information was used to change practices and policies in terms of access and other things in our community. We also created a website where we could link to all of the different resources related to uh, COVID, as well as we could provide resources related to mental health that were sort of absent during that time. So the second strategy I'm going to talk about is targeted messaging. And during COVID, this was very challenging because it was as we were building the plane while we were flying it, right? We were learning on the go about COVID and still trying to target um, messaging. So we are approached by our infectious disease colleagues who really said, we want black and brown folks in our COVID studies. Um, we are not gonna be able to rest well if we know that black and brown um, individuals are not included in our study population. But we know that there are many barriers to having this. And so to having um, those communities involved because those communities have a lot of mistrust, um, et cetera, with, the, um, with studies and especially with the COVID-19 vaccine um, study, there was a lot of um, skepticism. And so we went to the community and we said, what would it take to get you even interested in a vaccine study? And they told us that they first needed to know what they needed to do to even be healthy themselves. They couldn't always figure out the information. It was coming at them from a lot of different sources, a lot of different conflicting information. And they needed to know what are the two or three things they could do to stay safe. And that was more important as a first step before they could even consider um, a, a study or anything um, related to that. 
So what we did is we worked with them to have information about the study on one side of the flyer and then information about helping prevent the spread of COVID-19 on the back. And then to get people interested in the study, we realized that there was an infodemic. Not only were there lots of myths um, out there about the vaccine, but people also did not understand how vaccines were developed and how the process works. And so we had to do a lot of um, education about that. And what we did is developed a myth and fact sheet specific to some of the myths we were hearing in the African-American community, as well as some of the ones we were hearing in the Latino community. What you see pictured here is the one um, specific to the African-American community at the time. And this really helped um, people understand some of the, or address some of the basic myths that were there, the most common myths, and then people could have a conversation from there. In addition, we partnered um, with the regional communications team um, to, um, to support their um, initiative, which was getting to zero, right? Um, and so what they were trying to do was get everyone tested, get everyone vaccinated so we could get to zero cases of COVID. And so we partnered with their communications team. We provided them with information from our assessment study. We provided them with information from our community partners. Um, and then we also worked on access. What we found is that when we talked to um, individuals in our community, they said that they didn't have transportation. They couldn't get appointments in the evenings or weekends to get tested or to get the vaccine. And so they really wanted a central place where they could get information and, and sign up for things. And so we created that um, with our community um, and really promoted that. And we had then trusted sources to help roll out that information about the vaccine and about um, testing. So our COVID-19 vaccine test and protect um, site, which you can see there, had that information. And then we also encouraged people to stay updated um, for um, about COVID-19. We sort of um, let them understand that this was an evolving situation. We were learning on the go. We didn't know everything. And that's why the information was conflicting. And so um, what they needed to do was tune in to something regularly to get updates. And we sort of set that tone for uh, folks in the community, which helped them better understand where we were and what was happening at the time. In addition, we partnered with a All Children um, Thrive Learning Community Health Network um, to do a social media campaign where people would talk about them um, and show pictures of them be being uh, vaccinated and um, share the experiences on uh, Twitter. So we started a campaign because what we noticed is that our community was saying, well, I haven't seen anyone who looks like me receive a vaccine. Are uh, the Black doctors receiving vaccines? And so we um, started a social media campaign to um, help people understand and see that. The third strategy that I'm gonna talk about is partnering to promote health. And part, when you're partnering to promote health, it's very important that you choose your partners uh, wisely. 
And so what we were looking for were community partners, leaders, and influencers. Because what we know is when you have influencers, they're going to be able to reach many more of the community than you can. And so we really wanted to look for trusted messengers who represented the community. And we wanted to make sure that we supplied them with relevant, timely, and easy to understand information. Excuse me for one second. <coughs> we knew that people in the community had a lot of vaccine questions and hesitations, and I won't read all of these. I won't read all of these, but there are several. There were um, questions about the cost. There were questions about access um, from our Latino community. There were questions about um, green cards and immigration. People were worried about the impact on the body. People were trying to understand if they got something else, would it impact their response to COVID or if they had a medical condition? And then a lot of people talked about they didn't want to be first. They didn't want to be experimented on. And then there were other um, concerns. And so what we did is we partnered with community leaders to make a video specific to our Hispanic Latino community and Cincinnati with, um, with community leaders addressing some of the most common myths about the vaccine. We also created one with our African-American um, community. And I would just like to show a little bit of this video um, so you can get a sense of it. Hi, I'm Michelle Hopkins. Let's face it, we have been in a fight for our very lives with COVID-19. We've been social distancing wearing a mask, sometimes two, staying at home a lot, and we've been washing our hands for 20 seconds at a time. And now that the vaccine's out, medical professionals are encouraging us to get the shot in the arm that could save our lives. Vaccine, and every day, Lincoln tells his listeners he's getting it. Today, Lincoln is walking the talk, rolling into a drive-through at UC Health. Ready to get that vaccine? Get ready to get it. And within about six minutes, Lincoln is rolling up his sleeve to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Relax your whole shoulder all the way down to the side. Perfect. And just like that, he's done. Taking the lead so he can let his listeners know what it's like. Let's face it, at 70, Lincoln also knows that the vaccine is his best bet to keep the COVID away. The vaccine is not the problem. The problem is COVID-19. It's not vaccine, it's COVID-19. If you don't deal with the vaccine, you might not be around because COVID-19 will take you out. Um, you can see that it was pretty effective and um, you know our minister did not disappoint. <laughs> so people were going around um, saying, I want shirts that say, it's not the vaccine, it's COVID-19 and COVID-19 will take you out. Um, but it was a nice um, opportunity to highlight some of the leaders, what they were thinking um, about it, what their plans were, and for the African-American and Latino communities to, to hear that and to see that. Um, in, a in addition, we did many virtual events. I'm going to um, briefly talk about two um, more recent events that have to do with our kids. Um, and so we did a youth engage event for teenagers um, to really promote the vaccine. And we targeted our Cincinnati public school, our largest school system 
in Cincinnati. And what we did is not only have a forum where they could come and ask questions, but we also created a video challenge where they could give us a one, one minute video um, that, dis, that showed either a mitigation strategy, so masking or um, something related to that, or they could um, talk about the vaccine. And we let them know that the information had to be accurate. Um, we had a community partner who offered incentives, and then we had a team of community partners and academic partners be the judges. Um, we um, received a very good response to that. And so we followed that uh, event up with a kids-focused event that was really for kids and parents of younger children, um, so the five to 11-year-olds. And in that, we um, had a photo challenge. And so we asked kids to submit photos related to one of the mitigation strategies, um, again, or, or related to the vaccine. So for the teen event, we had 148 participants. Um, we asked folks to complete a survey. Um, so we had 98 adolescents complete the survey. Um, resp uh, respondents said that they um, received information about awareness, they received information about vaccines, and then we had 45 submissions to our video contest. <laughs> it was a quick judging turnaround, let me tell you. And then for our um, child event, we had 125 families and we had 28 photos for our photo contest. And you can see there um, some of our, our cute um, young kids showing off their um, mitigation strategy uh, photos. So what did teens recommend on the evaluation? Well, they recommended that the vaccine be available to them at their schools, um, for those schools who had school-based health centers. They said we should get teens to talk about the experience. We should elevate the experience of teens. Of course, they're teenagers, so they talked about incentivizing vaccination but they also talked about seeing people like themselves getting the vaccine. So they wanted to see, for example, more African-Americans get the vaccine. What did parents and kids say? Parents and kids say that, said that the information should be presented at school-sponsored events, such as sports events, that they thought um, we should continue these types of forums, that it was wonderful advice from experts, and that we should, um, let the kids continue to ask questions. So at both events, kids and teens uh, asked questions and there was a panel of doctors as well as at the kids event, we had a um, zookeeper and um, the zookeeper showed a video of different um, animals getting their vaccinations and talked about the importance of vaccination. So they love that. And then on the teen event, we had a Bengals player um, come and talk about the importance of vaccination as well as a coach and an athlete. And um, I think that the participants really um, enjoyed hearing those perspectives. And I thought this last one was kind of interesting um, from the parent and child one. Students who have the vaccine could be given time during class to share why they got it. So we took this information and used it to think about our um, community clinics going forward. We had several um, community-based clinics where we offered these types of opportunities. So could we combine the clinics with sports events? Could we combine the clinics and have folks who had the vaccine be there? Could we have doctors walking around so people could ask questions? So we tried to take that information and use it. And this to me, 
um, in all this work, um, it, it really matters, right, the impact. And so to me, um, this was um, made me feel like the impact was uh, good. A parent said on the um, at the end of the event, I feel at ease now getting my kids vaccinated and also another Pfizer dose for myself. So. All right, so we've talked about three different strategies. We've talked about assessing, we've talked about partnering, um, and then tailored messaging. Now I'm gonna talk about a fourth strategy, which is using a train the trainer model with cultural brokers. A cultural broker is someone in the community who already has an, a relationship with the community who disseminates information. And that person may be an individual member or it may be a community agency, someone from a community agency. So we decided to have a um, vaccine ambassador workshop. Um, we wanted to train community partners about the vaccines. And we also wanted to train them in communication strategies and tools. And we were very specific that they were to be vaccine ambassadors not um, vaccine promoters. The ambassador answers questions, has information and builds and connects relationships, but does not necessarily um, you know, influence on one side or, or the other, but provides the information. And that's really what we wanted our community partners to do. So we had 44 um, community partners attend the train the trainer session. It was an hour and a half Zoom session. You can see they came from all kinds of not-for-profit community-based organizations, as well as community health. Um, we had 26 of the 44 um, complete an evaluation, a lot less than the adolescents, but it's another story. Um, you, um, attendees thought that the training increased their knowledge about the vaccine and increased their confidence, talking with peers or families and help to address the concerns in their community. We did a follow-up a week later, and we said, since the training, have you had a conversation or a, done a formal training? And we had 17 of the 26 complete the survey, and they had reached 134 individuals um, consisting of family, friends, work colleagues, and others. Um, so we felt like it was a good pilot, um, some good data to show impact and that it's um, something that could be modeled in the future. Um, one participant said, I have a more thorough understanding of how to respond to vaccine hesitancy concerns. I've realized that it's hard to change people's minds. If I talk to someone about the vaccine and they still decide not to get the vaccine, I do not consider that a failed attempt. I realize I'm still a voice promoting factual information in a sea of misinformation. Additionally, I am planting seeds of knowledge and people might decide to get vaccinated later on. So I think, you know, the goal was to help people understand it might not be a yes, no decision, but there might be a continuum. It might be a, I'm waiting right now or I'm not ready, but I might move towards that. And so that's one of our goals with that particular training. All right, so we have talked about uh, four different strategies in working with the community that I hope that you could think about using in your own work to really promote that equity, those upstream um, solutions, again, while you're still managing the downstream solutions. But how do we make sure that that equity approach also is present within the walls of our institution? 
So John Lewis reminds us that we may not have chosen the time, but the time has chosen us. So the time for equity within the walls of our institutions is now. Um, there is no better time and this is the time. It's time for us to move, to change our thinking and our actions. Let me say that again, thinking and actions from a savior design system where we are thinking about saving vulnerable groups to an equity empowered system where we're addressing root causes, where we're sharing power, um, where we're focused on equity and we're amplifying the lived experience. We're unapologetic about the root causes, including structural racism. And we're really focused on that economic equity. We have to move away from a one-sided approach and tokenism into that more um, sharing power approach. So um, we also have to move to understand the interconnectedness, right, of social determinants and health and the impact that has. And so um, who better to do this than those of us in academic medicine? We have both the skills and the training. Who better understands complex systems and the ripple effect that one, um, that changing one thing can have on several different systems around the body? It's the same application to this issue. We have also the opportunity to partner across disciplines. So you have Dr. Santos and a wonderful pediatric psychology division at your hospital. They, um, psychologists are really being leaders in this work across the country. They have developed standards for inclusive language, models to guide the work. Um, they're helping us rethink how we design studies and interpret findings. Um, so this is a wonderful time for all of us in academic medicine to come together to partner and promote equity in the work. Now that's great, Lori, right? Um, but how do we do this? How do we really operationalize this? You might be saying to yourself. So one of the things we've done at our institution is we created a faculty um, diversity, equity, and inclusion strategic plan. And it, there are four goals to this strategic plan. The first is to improve diverse representation and career development. The second is to build an equitable and inclusive community and culture. Um, it's great to have diverse representation, but if you don't have a culture, um, that's inclusive and equitable, then you're not going to retain that diverse representation and people aren't going to want to develop their career in your institution. To do all of this, you must have the appropriate infrastructure and resources in place, and you have to hold yourself to some type of accountability. And how can you optimize outcomes and how is there synergy across the work? So we've created a faculty um, advisory committee and we've prioritized actions to move the work forward. We've also given people time, protected time to implement the work. So myself and Dr. Jereen Meisender lead the work. And then we have a group of amazing um, liaisons who help us advance the goals of our plan. 
and you, they come from a variety of disciplines, including surgery, anesthesiology, um, pediatrics, and um, others. So it is our time. It is our time to move from equality to equity, but I would suggest we can't stop at equity. We really need to move towards social justice. And so, you know, we can do this on a day-to-day -day experience. We can ensure that our clinical practices and policies empower rather than blame. And one of the ways we can do this is to think about solving for the system. So if an individual clinical issue comes up, how can you not just solve it for that family, but solve it from a systems perspective? And what is that telling you? So I just like to thank you for your time and attention, um, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, uh, Dr. Crosby, for you know truly informative and and I, I, you know being an infectious disease provider. I, I think uh, uh, I I want to make sure the audience understands that everything goes back to infectious disease. So just just kidding. Um, all right, so we have uh, we do, we have some comments and questions from uh, Dr. Zellaritis. Uh, the, uh, the question is, in dissemination of information, do you ignore or debunk the misinformation simultaneously promoted through social media? Great question. And there was quite a bit, and there has been quite a bit of information promoted through social media. So we um, suggest to people, we take a transparency and empowerment approach. And we suggest to people that they should be skeptical, they should have questions, and they should seek to get their questions answered. And so um, when we're asking them about social media and we're thinking about social media, we don't try to directly um, debunk a myth, but instead provide um, uh, accurate information and factual information. And we might say, you may have heard this, but here's, we want you to know, we want you to do your research and know that this is what it really is. So um, we don't try to directly uh, address it, but more promote the fact um, in, instead. Hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, thanks. And um, another one is, uh, isn't it a, a key element of health equity overcoming the culture, however warranted, of mistrust? Uh, how do you change the culture of mistrust? Thank you, that's a great question. Um, mistrust is a huge issue. And the first um, thing we have to do is become trustworthy, right? And, and our systems have not been trustworthy. We haven't been transparent. We haven't um, helped people understand our systems. And so our system has become, um, it's, it feels very hidden. It feels very um, uh, unapproachable to many of our communities. And we have to change that by being a trusted partner. So we have to get outside of the walls of our community. We have to show that we're invested in the community as well as invested in um, the health of things that happen within our institution. We have to make the institution um, welcoming and open to um, hearing the culture of those who come, who come to our institutions. So for example, you know, um, what if we rolled out the red carpet and had that approach versus um, people have to come and um, figure out what to do in our space. <laughs> they have to adjust to our 
norms and culture? What if we could um, have something in between or something that um, sort of helped people get there? So for example, when we send our um, kids off to college, there are orientations, there are um, supports um, to help them uh, optimize that experience. Um, what do we do related to that within our institution and how can we do a better job and how can that, um, that helps us build that trust. Great, thank you. Um, from Emily Wakefield, one of our psychologists, uh, thank you, Dr. Crosby, for this amazing presentation and all of the important work you do. You talked about the importance of developing strong community partnerships. Could you please share more about how you were able to identify helpful partners and lessons learned from partnerships that were less helpful? Thank you. Thanks so much. That's a great question. Um, building partnerships takes time. And um, it also helps if you if you're new at it, it helps if you can connect with someone who already has some of those relationships. So um, I'll start with that and then I'll get to the lessons learned part. So, for example, um, UC had convened um, a task force to look at the health disparities, as we were talking about with related to COVID. And so we um, asked if we could get on the agenda for that uh, meeting, could we talk to some of the community partners and would any of the partners be interested in um, working on our project with us? And so that is how we sort of got our foot in the door um, to, to partners who were interested in the work and who would um, we knew would participate in the work. Um, it is very important lessons learned. So sometimes partners um, have a different agenda. And so it's very important um, that you're that you find out about your shared goals and vision, what part is shared and what part is not shared. So we did have a partner who was very much um, in it for, um, I think they wanted to do good work, but they also wanted to um, get their name out, get their name out there. Um, some of our other partners were not worried about that and much more focused on the health of the communities. And so um, what we learned is that you have to um, evaluate your partner on that shared uh, goal and shared vision. And there might be places where you step up and step back based on um, that particular partner. So for that partner, we worked with them on a few things, but there were other things that we did not work with them on specifically because um, they had a different agenda um, than ours. Yeah, and, and I think uh, just a commentary to that is the, you know, this country is very large and, um, you know, I can, regard, you know, regarding the Latino community, the, the, the diversity within the Latino community is enormous. Yes. Uh, so when you're speaking to a, an Ecuadorian immigrant or a, you know, somebody who, uh, who's come from Central America, each country may be very different from, a, you know, a Hispanic American born in, in this country. And they, so each culture is a, is different. So I think a lot of these partnerships have to be really local, uh, depending yes. on on the on the specific area that you live in. And and so in Cincinnati, I'm sure you had to reach out to specific partners within Cincinnati. Can you comment on that? Yes. So we have a Latino Health Collaborative, for example, and that's who we worked with, who brings together a lot of different um, Latino serving organizations um, who are very community um, driven, as you said. And so um, we worked with that collaborative and then that collaborative led us and helped us, like, for example, decide who should be in the video and um, who should give what message. 
knowledge and, and all of that. So that was really, really helpful and extremely important. The same is true for the African-American, right, Black community, because there are pockets, there are neighborhoods, um, there are differences. And so we also had to work with agencies across um, the community to really make sure we were meeting the needs of um, the different facets of the community. Uh, another common question, do you have a, a medical legal partnership? How strong are your legislative efforts? And um, I, I can get private insurance to pay enhanced flu vaccine, but Medicare did not cover it. So, so again, just the, you know, the, the strength of those collaborations for medical legal. Yeah, we do have a medical legal partnership through our primary um, care um, part of our hospital that is very, very strong. Um, and so we can leverage that um, when needed. We also have an advocacy um, rotation and, and area of our hospital that is up and coming. And so we have some legal um, partnerships there that we can sort of work on. But um, you're, you're, whoever sent the question in, thank you. You're very right. Like it took um, some work. Um, and that Latino collaborative helped us, especially um, related to making sure we had some populations where we wanted to make sure their COVID needs were met and we needed some um, medical legal partnerships to do that. Um, some of the Hispanic Latino um, populations, we had that issue, but also with our populations of like um, recent, uh, recently incarcerated individuals, um, and others. There were other pops, uh, parts of our community as well where those um, partnerships were really important in the work. Great. Uh, this common question, uh, while the establishment endeavors to become trustworthy, is there any effort to engage the community leaders to guide uh, communities to bear some of the responsibility to hold up their end of the partnership? Right. So that's a, a great question as well, because you, you, um, your community partners may play different roles. Um, and so some community partners, um, you may have a, um, a, a very shared and equitable relationship with and others. Um, it may be a, a more short term um, sort of uh, specific relationship. I think um, partners are at different um, stages, just as we are in the institution about being ready to partner and what they can uh, provide. So I think it's a really important comment to think about that as we're um, making those partnerships. My question for you is, you know, issues of structural racism, health equity, social justice are not new concepts. And I think COVID has highlighted a lot of things. How do we keep this work going so that it doesn't become a trend or something that potentially has a backlash as people maybe get tired of hearing about this sort of thing? Thank you so much for that question. And that's really important. Um, how do we persist in this work and how do we keep it present? And so um, one of the things that I think is helping our institution is that strategic plan, right? It's actually huge. And so we're just taking one chunk at a time. And we um, also have a strong dissemination plan with that within the institution, right? So each time we make progress, we report out. Um, to different um, parts of the institution. And I think that helps to keep it alive and to keep it going. And then we're also um, starting a blog where we're reporting some of our um, progress related to that so that it keeps present on people's minds. Um, so I think the strategic plan, I think the investment by the institution really helped. The backlash question is an important one. 
Um, and it's, it's one we get a lot as we're working towards, of course, our um, strategic plan eventually will uh, lead towards some type of um, uh, reporting structure for microaggressions and other things. And so there, there are people um, worried and wondering about that um, with backlash, as well as just, um, I've been doing this work and now it's not popular anymore. And, and so what happens then? So we're trying to put some institutional and structural resources into place to prevent that from happening. And I'll just give you one example. So we have a, um, a patient refusal policy that we um, tried to implement in our um, institution. And it started as a policy and then um, people realized that it needed to be more than that. Um, that you can't just have a policy like that without supports and structures to, to put it in place. So we now have um, scripts, um, we have a, a, a tree, a reporting tree, we have videos, we have all kinds of training and support around that policy to make sure that's implemented in a way that um, really uh, maintains itself. And now it's policy driven. And so now it's just getting the rest of the institution trained up and given the support to implement that policy. And that's how we're trying to think about things going forward. So I hope that helps. <laughs> a long to-do list of things that we're gonna do after this talk of moving things forward and breaking things out of the walls here of Connecticut Children's, but really getting out in our community. Thank you again so much for giving us some of your time this morning. It is always a pleasure and it was good to see you again. Thanks, everybody, for attending this morning. For joining. Uh, don't forget to join us next Tuesday for uh, the April 19th Grand Rounds and Developmental Pediatrics, Dr. Angela Scott. And then May 6th, we'll have Dr. Shriver back in Ask the Experts. Uh, Dr. Crosby, thank you. Dr. Santos, thank you for wonderful Grand Rounds. And we will see you again. Take care. Be safe. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.